James. Hey. How are you? Lord. I'm doing fine. How do I sound to you guys? You sound great, but you look awful. You broke the dress code rule here, and you have a tie on, and you look professional, and now we look like sewer rats. Is that what you wanted? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, by the way, we are talking to Jim Bianco. This is the Features Edge Podcast. I'm Jim Urio. As usual, Bob Iacchino, Brain Behind the Operation. Jim Bianco, the, one of the reasons he's my favorite house, by the way, and I, I mean this sincerely, Jim. Jim Bianco, who is the chairman, CEO, president, Grand Poobah Bianco Research, is that everybody, including myself, I believe starts with bias. The thing I like about you the most is that I don't believe you do. I, everybody either goes with consensus or specifically goes against consensus. I don't think you give a shit about consensus and you do your own work. And I mean that as a, the utmost compliment. I genuinely believe that. And uh, thank you for the research you do. You helped me a ton. Um, before can, we I go, make a comment, of... can I make a comment on that? I, yeah. I think the secret to making money, in, now I know what the secret is, but uh, executing it is very difficult, is you stake out an opinion. I think this then you got to figure out where the consensus is. Well, if the consensus is here too, you know, where, where you're at, there's no opportunity. But if you think this and the consensus is here, or you think this and the consensus is here, if you guys are looking at me on TV, then there's an opportunity, the gap between you and the consensus. Right. The single hardest thing to do is figure out what the consensus is. Everybody always on Twitter throws that up. Oh, everybody's all bearish on the market. Everybody's all bullish on the market. That's really difficult to really kind of figure out. There are different groups. Futures traders might be this way. Options traders might be that way. Pension managers might be this way. Hedge funds might be that way. And to try and aggregate that into a consensus opinion is very difficult. So I just tweeted out something about, uh, I, and I was it was half tongue in cheek, right? The cover story of The Economist magazine was the amazing, strong U.S. economy. And I said, that's it, buy bonds. We're going to hit the wall and have a recession <laughs> and all that other stuff. And somebody said, yeah, but everybody's all long. And then I sent him a chart and I was like, well, look at the 10 year COT report. It's at a record short. But you just said they're all long. I'm sure you saw something that made you think that. But my point is, it's a difficult thing to try and figure out what the But how do you is. do it then? What steps do you go to to try to figure out what consensus is? Oh, I think you got to look at a lot of different things and you've got to put a lot of things together. And a lot of times I would argue to you that I don't know what the consensus is. And I'll give you a great example of that. I don't know what the consensus is in the stock market right now. I don't know if they're bullish. It's going up. Everybody hates it and it's going up. It's the most hated rally ever. I don't think there is such a thing as a hated rally. Somebody's buying the damn thing. It's going up. It can't be that hated. Um, you know, so it's it's very difficult to give a a, a, a real viewpoint where there is a strong, strong consensus on something. The last strong consensus I think I saw was crude oil at the beginning of the year. It's going to $100. And then, you know, what's the, what's the first thing it did? It went down 20 bucks. You know, now maybe it's maybe it's setting the stage to go to 100 now, but we've already blown out all the people that were long it in January for a bet for $100. So they're going to have to scramble back into it if it winds up doing that. But yeah, I think it's difficult. Before Bobby, you know, I know Bobby has a question about oil. Let's start with oil, by the way, too. 
um, is the is the government thing. The fact that they pulled their bids out at seventy. Now all of a sudden they announced they're going to buy it back at eighty three. The Saudis all get together and um, slow down production, at least claim to be slowing down production. Do you think crude oil is going to 100 bucks? You know, I would, there's a real possibility that it could. And I'll tell you why. If you look at, let's talk about what happened with the Saudis. March 24th, I just tweeted about this yesterday. That's why I got the numbers in my head. March 24th, uh, uh, Energy Secretary Granholm comes out and says, we may not fill the SPR for years. Then on April 2nd, the Saudis get together with the Russians and the Iranians, and they cut production in a surprise. The market's up like 8% that day. And the FT story specifically says that the Saudis were irritated with the U.S. for not buying back to refill the SPR. Then yesterday, Energy Secretary Granholm comes out. The price was $69 on March 24th when she said, we're not going to buy back for years. Yesterday, the price is $83. She says, we might be buying back before the end of the year. It's like, wait a minute. I didn't realize that what we needed was more expensive oil to get you to fill the SPR, not less expensive. I think where they made their mistake with the SPR is it is a, what we learned about it is it's, it can be an extraordinarily powerful tool for manipulating the price of crude oil, like the Fed is for manipulating the price of interest rates. But if you're going to start from oh, good, let's manipulate interest rates or let's manipulate crude oil all the way to zero and let's drive everything to zero. You're forgetting there's this other half of the market called producers and they're not going to be very comfortable with you driving them completely out of freaking business. And that's what I think the Saudis looked at. You guys you guys sold a few hundred million barrels of oil out of the SPR because you wanted to lower gas prices for the midterm election. All right, I'll hold my tongue on that one. But I expect you to, you know, remember there are producers and they need to make a living too. And then they come back and they say, well, now that we got the price under 70 bucks, maybe we won't ever buy again. And well, let's see if we could get it down to 50. And that's when the Saudis gave them the middle finger and said, you know, we gotta, we gotta, we being producers have to look out for our own interest. And they cut production and jacked the price up. And I think the administration got the slap to the face and said, you know, guys. We can't just drive the price to zero uh, or attempt to drive the price to zero because there's this other problem we're going to have. And if we drive the Saudis into the arms of the Russians and the Iranians, that is a big, big time, long-term problem for the U.S. So is the price going to go higher? Sure. Could it go to 100 bucks? If the Saudis are now starting to feel their oats, hey man, we're in charge here, not not the U.S. We'll we'll decide. I'll call my buddy Vlad, and we'll just decide where we're going to go. Absolutely, it could go that way. I know, Bobby. What do you think about oil? I I do think the same thing. So one of the issues I have, and this is kind of, I'll make a statement, and then I'll ask you a question. From a perspective of crude oil itself, uh, I raised my hand when you said everybody thought crude oil was going to 100. Uh, I was I did a couple of TV interviews myself where I said 95 before 65. Then we subsequently rushed right down to 65, which to your earlier point, I think one of the biggest problems for people in trading and, and let's call it active investing is attaching their own self-worth to the outcome of their trades. Like they'll literally put on a trade where their, their particular process that they've been involved in for however many years tells them this is a good trade, which at best is probably a 65 or 70% probability, right? Except for Hillary Clinton, who does way better than that. Right. But 
in that particular landscape, you're going to have losing trades and people have two losing trades in a row. And then they're like, God, I must just be stupid. And they start changing their process, which is kind of the same thing you were talking about. But I, I digressed a lot. I want to ask you about, we had you on July of last year, right? And in July of last year, you were adamant that inflation wasn't going to come down enough. You never said in that show it wasn't going to come down. Ever. Right. But you said it's not going to come down enough. With the amount that it's come down now, and to your point about crude oil, the, the biggest weak point in CPI was energy. And that was last month's energy. Not this month where we're back above $83 a barrel. Um, where do you stand in that now? Is there a possibility over the next 12 months for inflation to come down enough? Or are the rate cuts that they're pricing in right now, in your view, uh, a little aggressive? So I'm still in that position. It's not going to come down enough. Let me, let me, I was out in July. Let's remember what happened in June. Uh, Paul went to the White House in June and he was there on the couch in the Oval Office with Yellen and with Biden. And Biden points at him and says, America, it's his job to bring inflation down. He's the guy that's going to do it. All right. You just gave him his marching orders and the Fed's got their 2% target. And so what I meant by it's not going to come down enough is Paul has made it extraordinarily clear. I'm going to hike and I'm going to stay higher for longer and I am not going to back off until we get to 2%. Well, we're at five right now um, after yesterday's CPI. <clears throat> and we've got three more months, I think, of decent da data coming. I think the inflation numbers are getting near the low and they're going to bottom in June. And now let me explain why. If you look at, economists call this the base effect. If you look at April, May, and June of last year, CPI, it was 0.4 in, in April of last year. So this year's CPI is going to drop off a of 0.4. May was 0.9, which is a very high number. June was 1.2, which is one of the highest numbers in the last 50 years. So we'll probably continue to print three-tenths, four-tenths, five-tenths for inflation. You tell me where crude oil is going to be this month. I'll tell you which is whether it's going to be five-tenths or three-tenths. <laughs> And the inflation rate will go from five to the, to the low threes by June. Then July, we drop a zero. Anything is going to make the year-over-year -year go up. And then we got a couple of point twos, a point one in there in the, in the second half of the year. So we're going to go down to the low threes, and then we're going to start drifting back up towards four, four and a half is where I think inflation is going to do, where I think it's going to do. That's not going to be enough to please the Fed. Is that, that enough to get them to hike again? Uh, only if, if I think that they're going to hike and pause based on the banking crisis. If you tell me, I'll, I'll say generically, uh, if you tell me that this was two or three bad actors, they screwed up their banks, they've been taken over by the FDIC, and it's over, and that's what the Fed wants everybody to believe, then yeah, they might continue to hike. They might continue to hike because they might say, that you know, if we're on our way back to four and the funds rate is five to five and a quarter, that's not enough of a real interest rate, interest rates above inflation to really slow things down. If you think the banking crisis is passing. Now, I happen to be in the camp that it's not. I happen to be in the camp that the, pro, you know, one of the things I've been asking people when they say about the banking crisis, I say, what is the banking crisis? Well, I'll give you my definition of the banking crisis. Most banks hold their deposit rates at zero. People have now realized, you know, for the last 12 years, they've been training us all to use, 
could use mobile apps to either pay our money, transfer money. We've all gotten used to mobile apps, to buying and selling securities. Does anybody remember the meme stock thing with, Red, with uh, GameStop? That was all done with everybody's phone and stuff. So now, so for 12 years, they pushed us all on the mobile apps. Well, interest rates were zero and your deposit account was zero and your money market account was zero. Well, today your deposit account is still zero. Your money market account's almost 5%. So when people say, what should I do to make money? The first thing I always say to them is, do you have any money in a savings account? Why? Pick up your phone and in five minutes, you can move it to a money market account, usually with your, with your bank, Chase Securities from Chase, you know, Citicorp Securities <clears throat> from Citicorp. And then you can pick up four and three quarters. As an example, if you have $250,000, which is, I picked that number because it's the FDIC limit, pick up your phone, move to Chase Securities, buy their money market fund at four and three quarters, you're picking up $14,000 a year. Five minutes of work, $14,000 a year. So before you ask me what stock I should buy or whether I should short this or that, there's $14,000 sitting on the table there. Go over, bend over and pick it up. And that's what I think is happening. That is the banking crisis right now. Every week, money, and they refer, they got a phrase for it, bank walk, as opposed to bank run. People are walking out of their banks to get higher yields. And what's the Fed gonna do next month? They're gonna raise the funds rate to five to five and a quarter. All the money market funds will be advertising above a 5% yield. The bank walk might become, I tweeted about this, a bank power walk. So the collective of that is not going to, it's not going to, um, it's not going to break uh, a bank. I don't think we're going to see a failure. But you, now fast forward to the fall, a shit ton, and that's a technical term, of deposits is going to come out of banks they're going to have to pull back on their lending because if their liabilities, which is a deposit as a bank liability goes down, their assets are going to come down too. And if, that, if that's the case, we're going to have a credit crunch. And then you might get that 2% inflation at that oh, point. Because if you break the question. economy, <laughs> if you break the economy, you'll get the 2%. My argument about three and then drifting higher was on the assumption you did not break the economy. But now I'm kind of thinking, you might break the economy. Now, last thought for you on that. What's the Fed do if you break the economy and you're still sitting there with three-ish inflation at the end of the summer? They cut rates like mad to 3%. Not to zero, not to QE anymore. I think they cut to three. We'll, get, we'll cut 200 basis points real fast to try and boost this thing. But I don't think it's going to be go to zero, quit QT, start ramping it up, because Paul will be sitting there going, we do that. And then you tell me we got no recession. We'll have freaking 12% inflation by the end of 24 is what is what he'll be. So he'll, he'll compromise and he'll go to three and he'll see if that'll be enough. And then we'll see whether or not that is enough because that'll bring down money market rates to 3%. And then we'll see whether or not, you know, where we are with that bank walk to see if that balances out. But the last thing I'll say to you on this subject, and this is for everybody, what is the single worst time to invest in risk assets like stocks? The minute the Fed starts cutting rates, because they're raising rates because things are strong. They hold because they're unsure. When do they start cutting rates? Another technical term for you. That's their oh shit moment. Oh shit, it's all going bad. And we got to do something now. I don't want to be long risk assets at the oh shit moment. Now, they're going to raise rates next month. They're not cutting rates. But if we get towards the end of the summer 
and this bank crisis metastasizes into that, no, they're going to start cutting rates. That's the oh shit moment. You don't want to be anywhere near risk assets at that point. So just before I let Jimmy chime in, because I know he's got a lot to say about this. <laughs> I, did, I didn't answer your question about crude oil. And yeah. I, think, I was thinking about not answering it, but then I realized this is going to be broadcast on Monday. We're recording on Thursday. So I need a Friday close above 83.70, and then I've got a target of 88.90. But I don't want anyone to push it up above there. Like what <laughs> oil traders coming in and calling me, going, "Do you want it?" Do you want it? Yeah. So that's my would you like? To... Would you like your clothes? Yeah, exactly. ask you. But, so how how much does energy play into that? Considering that shelter costs are coming down, is energy the biggest factor for you in that scenario of that bounce up again in inflation or no? Yes, because of headline, it is because it is so volatile. What gas prices okay. are down seventeen? Gasoline prices are down 17% in the last month or so. You know, people look at it go, yeah, gasoline prices are 4 or 5% in the basket CPI. Yeah, well, it moves 20% or 17% in a month. It does have a big influence on it. So, and now you, what you've seen with last month's number is for the first time in two and a half years, core inflation, year-over-year core inflation is higher than headline inflation because gasoline prices or all of energy is a depressant now on... Um, so uh, CPI. So if you if you do get your breakout in crude oil and you do get ninety dollar crude oil, then you're going to be pushing headline back up again. And in addition, because remember now, core inflation has still got a five handle on it right now, and it has the same thing too. There's two big numbers coming in May and June, so it should come down. But then there's all of these weak numbers, you know, in the second half of 22 that you're going to be comparing against that the year over year number can keep keep going up. So I have two questions. One is what's the, what's the cat's name? Uh, that's Juliet. Juliet. Oh, is there a Romeo too? No, no, no uh, there is not. I, I, it's a girl cat. My daughter's named her. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, secondly, you the, the picture you painted is relatively grim. So we're going to talk about, and I'm going to ask about the blame game, but only for to, to make a path for how we get out of this. Do you believe the federal government with inflationary policies over the last year, even though inflation was, was high, is to blame for this. Do you believe we got a different administration who actually understood the dynamics of inflation? This would help us? How long a process till we get to a point where things are better, whatever that is? All right. So again, everything is predicated on this idea that we are going to have a credit problem with that bank walk. Now, you know, the reason I say that if you listen to this thing two or three months later and there is no bank walk. Then, then we're back to the, you know, the economy's better and the economist cover was right. But I think there's going to be a bank walk. To your question about the government, yes, they're largely responsible for this. And the Federal Reserve is largely responsible for this in two ways. Way one, 14 years is zero. You cannot leave that off the table. 14 years of zero rates and no inflation, getting everybody to believe that we were in some new paradigm and so we, we elevate Stephanie Kelton and the modern monetary theorists and all of this other stuff that we could print money forever <laughs> and ever, and there will never be inflation. Um, and so we had that going for us that we, we overstimulated, overspeculated financial markets, overstimulated the economy. And it set the stage for the COVID lockdown that we then took whatever you thought was too much stimulation times eight 
and jam. We were mailing people money. I know it's only three years ago and it's still hard to, we were mailing people money and we were creating PPP programs for businesses saying, please, please rip me off. I'm the federal government. Please steal from me. <laughs> and so the result of that was a big burst of inflation. Mistake number two was waiting until May of 22 before they finally dealt with the problem. They should have been dealing with that problem mid-21, if not early 21. Mistake number three, and this was probably the worst of them, was raising rates so aggressively, four 75 basis point moves in a row. I've defended the Fed on their, on their forecast for one simple reason. I've said, look, at the end of the day, the Fed forecast you know, yesterday, the FOMC forecast, uh, staff forecast was for a mild recession later this year. That's the consensus on Wall Street, right? A consensus of economists is surveyed by Blue Chip or Bloomberg or any of those other services. They only they, they don't know anything more than you or me or the collective of Wall Street about what the economy's doing. The conceit with the Fed is they act on it like they've got some inside information. The really the egregious mistake is the Fed does have some inside information on the banks. They're the freaking regulator of all the banks. They get to see every single line item. They get detail on the financial positions of banks that you and me don't get, even if we read the 10Ks and 10Qs, because those are just summaries. They should have known from their position that jamming rates up that high, putting that spread between deposit rates and market rates was going to lead to this bank walk that we have. They should have known that, and they did not know that. And I wonder if they still don't know it to this day, that they're still in denial that that's exactly what's been happening. So, yeah, there's a lot of mistakes there. But here, you of those mistakes that you said, I will argue that the only mistake was that they're stupid in regulating the banks. I think they the, the inflation was intentional. It was the only possible way to bail out the five states that couldn't possibly pay their bills, pension funds throughout the country. I still think that in, in June of 2021, when they knew the CPI was printing over five, the housing market had gone parabolic, they were like, screw it. We're The only way that Illinois is ever saved is if we inflate this away. So was it a mistake? You know, that's, well, in, in retrospect, it was a mistake because I'll, I'll agree with you that the egregious mistake was they did not understand what they were doing and its impact on the financial system. And the, and remember, the sell-off in the market last year, uh, both stocks and bonds, and now, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the old adage that the Fed raises rates till something breaks, and it, and now we've got, the breaking is basically the deposit base of the of the country. And what you broke was the business model of the deposit base. There was an old saying in banking that you're more likely to get divorced than you are to switch your bank because it's easier to get divorced than switch your bank because it's always been difficult. Now with mobile Disagree banking with apps. That. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, now, uh, that sounds like a good story for another day, right? <laughs> Yeah, but now, uh, but now with mobile banking apps, it's really easy to chase yield. It's very easy to chase yield. And that's what a lot of people are doing right now. And because of that, now they've got a whole host of problems they have to deal with. Like I said, how do you stop the bank walk? You collapse the spread between market rates and deposit rates. There's two ways to do it. The Fed could cut rates, but you've got too much inflation for them. Right. Or the banks could raise deposit rates that destroys their profitability. One of the reasons that the bank stocks are not rallying 
is uh, they've basically gotten slammed and they've been going sideways. Why aren't they rallying? Not because there's a fear of another failure. It's because they're looking at this going, they can't make any money. They're, all the deposits are going to leave. And the only and, and they, for the last 14 years, have bought securities and handed out loans that are giving them 2% or 3% return yield. So you're telling me now in a 5% world, I got to raise rates to my the deposit rates to three or four. I will be at a permanent loss position if I do that. So they're sitting there with these zero yields, just watching everything bleed out. They don't know what to do is, is, what, their, is what their problem is right now. So yes, my point to your, to your question, that was their egregious mistake. Were they trying to bail out maybe Illinois and some of the other basket cases um, with their policy? Possibly. That's very possible that that could have been what they were doing. But I also think they had the Stephanie Keltons in the world, the MMTers whispering in their ear, it'll be okay. It won't create inflation. You won't have any knock-on effects from doing this. Go for it, Jay. Go for it, Jay. And he did. You, you raise my blood pressure every time you say her name. And by the way, I've, I've spoken <laughs> to her several times. I genuinely like her, but she's like Oppenheimer. She created the most toxic thing and everybody right. adopted it. And, and it just is amazing to me. But at least the Fed is going to handle climate change. I mean, we're all comfortable <laughs> with that. <right? laughs> Bobby, oh, my you God. got the next question. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I, I, got a, I got a couple of things, but I'm going to go to this one first. So I'm going to read a tweet from uh, Brian Westbury, who's a friend of all of ours, basically, uh, whether in person or, or social media. An ex-Illinoiser. He's in Colorado yeah. now these days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I met with him a couple of times when he was in Chicago at uh, BMO. But so he wrote today, it takes a village to, to build a big and failing government. Chicago is a perfect example. The Executive Club of Chicago says, quote, Join us on April 18th for a conversation between Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the fiscal team responsible for the city of Chicago's financial upswing. Then he adds upswing with a lot of exclamation points and question marks. And he says the only reason Chicago and many other cities and states have better looking budget numbers in 2021-22 is because of COVID money. Not only did Chicago get direct payments, including billions directly to the lockdown schools, but the sales tax of 10% was applied to pandemic deficit spending. The Executive Club of Chicago is a leading business organization of the city. If they don't ask tough, tough questions, the city is doomed. Uh, both of you guys, are big cities doomed because of this kind of thinking where they just won't be economically honest at least? We all, and that leads to my second question, but I'll let you guys talk for a minute because if they aren't, if they're all political, including the Economic Club of Chicago, which is an old, respected institution. Is there any hope? So let me let me take a stab at it, Jimmy, and you could go after me. Sure. Um, first of all, uh, I wish they were talking to Brandon Johnson as opposed to Lori. Lori's going to come in and defend stuff, and then 10 days later, she's out, you know, and mm -hmm. stuff. So why I don't really care about the lame duck as much as Brandon does. Um, yeah. I would, you want to talk about getting your blood boiling. That's, that this gets my blood. I live in the city of Chicago. Uh, I've been a Chicago boy for, except for the years I went to school and a couple of years in New York, my whole life. Same here. Uh, and uh, it, it really is sad what's going on in this city right now. And I do recognize that when I get on Chicago's case, I'm describing 12 other cities, uh, 12 other big cities in the country. The, 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 the really, maybe the sadder thing is when you talk about how pathetic things are in Chicago, 
you could just interchange the names Philadelphia or Cleveland or Kansas City or San Francisco, and you kind of get the same answer um, uh, from all of them. I would argue to you as a thought, the single most important statistic for any large urban area is their population. In 1970, Chicago had 3.6 million people that lived in the city, in the city proper. Today, that's 2.2. Uh, and so 40% of the population of the city is gone. Why is their financial situation so offsides? Because those 1.4 million taxpayers are somewhere else. It, it, and, you know, if you go into the challenged neighborhoods in the South and the West Side, it's like it's, if you've been to Detroit or any of the others, they're empty. They've torn down the buildings. It's, there's just emptiness there. There's nothing, no buildings, no anything, just, you know, um, just weeds growing in all these empty lots right now. If you want to show me a city that is doing the right thing, show me a city that has its population increasing. Chicago and Illinois have been leading on a per capita basis population out-migration. People have been leaving faster than before. Now, I'll give them one, um, you know, defense. The single hardest thing to do in all of politics is to manage a city or a state that is declining in population. It's easy to be the mayor. It's a lot easier to be the mayor of of Phoenix, where people are, or, or Nashville, where people are streaming in every single day and bringing with them more and more tax dollars. That's a lot easier than what you have in Chicago, where you have schools in Chicago that have less than 100 students in them, where 15 years ago they had 1,000 students in them. And those schools need to be closed and consolidated, but the unions are so strong that they will not allow that to happen. So we wind up spending $40,000 per pupil in the city of Chicago, one of the highest per spends in the entire country. Problem with Chicago is in lack of money. It's the way that they spend that money. So, you know, when she wants to talk about the upswing, and you're 100% correct, that it what Chicago and a lot of the other cities are, are benefiting from is the CARES Act. They have gotten a lot of money in for the CARES Act. I actually look at the CTA numbers. The CTA puts them on their website. That the CTA volume, the number of of riders in the CTA, and you know what, the MTA in New York is the same way. It's half to two thirds of what it was pre-COVID. Now in 2026, when all the CARES money is over, I, I don't know what they're going to do with the CTA. It is going to lose such an it is losing such an obscene amount of money right now because it doesn't have the ridership that it had. Are you going to raise the fare to $10 a ride? No one's going to ride it. You cannot continue to have this thing lose hundreds of millions of dollars a year and tag real estate taxes with that to try and make up that deficit. There is a big, big crisis coming for a lot of these cities. Just to use one example, this the, the, the public schools is the same way um, as well, too. And that doesn't even get into the whole social thing about the wokeness, uh, you know, not being tough on crime and wanting to defund the police. That's a whole nother <laughs> ball of wax. But the but the politics, I mean, the finances of, of big cities is in a big, big problem. Um, so, yeah, by the way, I, I just, you, you mentioned this is a question because I was going to give my two cents. I ride the CTA and or Blue Line. It's like zombie land. It's, it's unbelievable. I tell people that Chicago doesn't have public transportation if they're coming to visit Chicago now because you don't want to deal with that shit. You mentioned you said Phoenix and you said Nashville. And 
in Miami. And are there, and again, the only reason this jumped into my mind is because the migration from North to South, you know, started 60 years ago with the mass, um, the mass adoption of air conditioning, those made those places a lot more livable. Is there northern cities that are gaining population and gaining tax base that you can point to? Not that I can think of off the top of my head. Maybe, maybe a Denver. I mean, you know, you know, at, at that point. Uh, but that's that's kind of but that still know, has a geographical advantage or two to right. is, is it's Minneapolis. Kind of, no, right? No, you might have said before George Floyd, it might have been, but I think that oh, there's right. been dramatic there's been dramatic changes in in Minneapolis. I will say this: what what you know this is this is the the thing that the northern cities have to understand. Their competition has nice weather, so it's not you know. And two thirds of the country lives in a place where you need a snow shovel during the year, so it's not that. It's not that it's abhorrent to live in a northern climate. We all live in a northern climate, but why don't you why don't you um, compensate me for living in a northern climate with a lower cost of living in a lower tax base? Um, I had the fortune to meet with J.B. Pritzker before he ran for governor. You know, the, before the first time, five years, six years ago, and I'll never forget. He, I was listening to him speak, and there was a group of about ten or twelve of us there, and he was talking about putting on a millionaire tax. Uh, and uh, somebody raised their hand and said, the millionaire tax, uh, you know, they tried it in New Jersey and it didn't work. It was a giant failure and they had to repeal it. And then he, he comes back and he says, yes, but it's been successful in California. And I, I chimed in and I said, we're not fucking California. If you give me 75 and sunny in January, I'll give me a millionaire tax. Give me a millionaire tax. Well, they've been doing that. They've been saying that for for years about California, and because you know, Kansas yeah. adopted some of the same, uh, and Kansas, you know, and California has every geographical advantage on the freaking planet, and they right. all they do is blow it. I, I'm sorry about that, Bobby. You go, yeah. No, it's okay. But, you're, but you're right. I was just going to say you're right, and Bobby, you're right because California can have a 13 percent marginal tax rate and all of these other things because people will put up with a lot for the weather. So the Chicago's, the Minneapolis's, the St. Louis, the Detroit's, the Indianapolis's, you got to compensate for that. You got to make, you got to give me a deal to stay here. Because if you're going to give me the same tax rate as freaking California, I'll move there. I'll move but there. But it'll never happen, right? You agree that it can't possibly happen because they're too stupid. Right, right. Exactly. Bobby, <laughs> sorry, what were you going to say? Robert. No, what I was going to say is, so Jim, you don't know this. The other Jim does. is that I moved from Chicago to Florida about two and a half years ago. And it's funny that you mentioned about the geographic advantage, exactly what I'm talking about. I still consider myself a Chicago guy, but like we re we rented for the first two years. And then we recently bought a place. And the, the driveway that I have on this house is, is a half a city block long. And I tell everybody, they're like, wow, what a driveway. I'm like, this would have been a deal breaker in Chicago. Zero chance I would have bought this house because of the driveway, right? So that's what you, by the geographic advantages. And, and to the point of California, they have a geographic advantage. But over the last few years, the state's population has grown in single digits, which is a fall off from the trend. And during COVID, it actually shrunk briefly, briefly with all the advantages. And Jimmy, you're right. I mean, you're talking about Colorado, California, to a certain degree, Arizona are all prettier than Florida, much prettier, like lands, mountains and things. Yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah. But Florida, I'll tell you what, it's damn beautiful enough. 
And, you know, saving five digits in taxes, the first time, uh, first year I lived here was also beautiful. But my point going back to the other thing. So we had you on in July. When was the Powell Biden meeting? Because I don't remember. When was that? It was, it was I remember May it. Or, it was late May or early June is where okay, I remember it. So you're the only other person besides myself that I heard talk about. I mean, it was talked about where he Biden said in a press conference later, uh, the Fed's inflation is the Fed's problem. And I've always kind of morphed that. Now it makes me think that I, I partially stole it from you, which is really upsetting. I thought I was smart. But I've always morphed that into, they literally sat him down, my own fantasy brain going, sat him down and go, by the way, we're going to dump this on you. We need to be reelected. So we need someone to blame on inflation. We're going to dump it on you. And Powell, being who he is, uh, I won't tell the Michael Farr story again, but basically, you know Michael Farr, right, Jim? He basically yeah. told us, he knows Jerome Powell and he's stubborn. I'll make it the short version of the story. And I imagine Powell sitting there and going, all right, all right, it's my problem. Fuck you. Yeah. I'll make it my problem. No problem at all. I'm not stressed about it. Right. You want me to fix this? Oh, then I'm going to fix it. You, know, you watch me here. I'm going to fix this, right? <laughs> so I just think that like, and this is, it's not an argument Jimmy and I have been having because he's been right about inflation coming down. But I the Fed can't say they want an inflation, but we talked about things being political already. The Economic Club of Chicago, we all agree in the past, the Fed has acted politically rather than independently, especially like during 2018 and the taper tantrum and all that stuff. They've acted politically, right? Right. But now the president and the treasury secretary go, this is your problem. We're dumping it on you. And he's supposed to care about a recession with 3.4, 3.5 unemployment when they have a statutory mandate that's full employment and stable inflation at 2%. No, and exactly. You're exactly right. I mean, he is, you know, so, you know, that that was the, you know, just to fast forward a couple of weeks ago, last month when he did his uh, um, uh, testimony from Congress and Liz Warren was getting on his case about, you um, you know, that your forecast is calling for 4.6% unemployment, and that's 2 million people losing their jobs. Yeah. And and Powell's basically his answer was no one's lost any job. I mean, we're still at 3.4, 3.5% unemployment. No yeah. one has lost anything. So I'm just going to keep jacking rates and keep jacking rates. And once you start to see a weakness in the economy, then we can talk. But it reminds know, me it, of like the old Chicago outfit stuff when they're like, they protect a guy, protect a guy, protect a guy. Then when he gets arrested, he's on his own. So he flips. Right. So Powell, flip, Powell flipped. Powell said, that's <laughs> it. Fine. I'm flipping on you guys. I'm not doing this anymore. Right. And I, you know, so we'll see. Jimmy, you were going to say something? No, I just was going to say, I wanted to, to and I, I loved that combo and I agree with all of it, but I want to bring it back to like, we're looking at the things that seem pretty dismal going forward. Where does someone make a return? Where does someone in, invest money? I mean, I, you know, what do you think? Well, one of the reasons, <clears throat> one of the reasons that I like to uh, be a little bit unbiased or agnostic about markets is there's always an opportunity and there always will be an opportunity. So if, we're going to have a bank walk. And if we're going to have a problem, what do I do? You could sit in 5% money. You could sit in 5% money market fund until things become clearer and you can jump in at that point. I mean, all right. And if I'm, if I'm wrong, you can still jump in. You know, you're, if, 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 you know, if you, if your demand is I have to constantly make money every day, then you're going to be richer than Elon Musk. 
you know, and so, you know, you know, you pick the spots that you understand and pick the spots you're comfortable with. And if the market goes without you one direction or the other, and you don't understand it, um, so what? You know, oh, I was bearish and the market went up. Eh, there'll be another bull market. There always is. There'll be, oh, I was bearish and the market, you know, went down or something. There's going to be another bear market too. So don't worry about it. Uh, so what do I think? A, the long-run return of the stock market is 9%. I'm getting five for zero risk right now. All right, there we go. Before we even start the conversation, I get two-thirds of the stock market's gain for zero risk. So start with that. Are you all in on that you're going to get at least 5%? Now that I've got my 5%, what incremental things can I do in order to augment that. Maybe I could be long bonds on the idea that there's gonna be a slowdown or a recession. Maybe I could be long energy on the idea that crude oil is going to continue to go higher. Maybe I could be short the dollar if the economy is gonna be weak, that that should be uh, negative uh, for the dollar. I could do all of those trades. Little incremental things like that. What the question you asked is for 20 years, uh, in the markets, or 15 years from 08 to 2021, there was basically the S&P, international stocks, bonds, and emerging. So there's four instruments. One of them, at least one of them is going up 20% this year, if not three of them. So which one of those four should I buy? And if your answer is, well, that's not the way it works anymore. No, no, no. That's the way it works. I want, I got four instruments. Which one do I buy? So I get my 20% return. This is a different environment we're in. So take your 5% and then pick your spots for the rest. There might be an opportunity to buy one of those big four, you know, later this year or next year or something like that. And I could be totally wrong. And the opportunity to buy them is right now. I, I, that's just not the way that I see it. So I, I had, um, you know, I like gold, silver, Bitcoin, and copper specifically. And I've been in that since October in that trade. And part of it was the weaker dollar. So the weak right. dollar trade that the Fed has to come back in. I guess I'm looking not for an attaboy. I'm looking for, you think that seems sensible? Oh, absolutely. Because that's a ver that's a variation. The The gold silver and copper is a variation on the weak dollar. So, you know, gold right. is over $2,000 now. It's pushing its all-time high again. Was it 2105 or something like that spot is its all-time high. So it's getting very close. Um, so that's a, that's a version of playing the weak dollar. I like those trades for that reason. Bitcoin is soaring. Bitcoin is soaring, I think, on, um, on two things. One, it is a bit of an anti-dollar, but also... This banking thing is really bullish for Bitcoin because if Bitcoin, if blockchain, if Ethereum, if cryptocurrencies, if the allure, the promise of them was an alternative financial system, all of a sudden now, it's not such a bad idea to take a look at an alternative financial system. Three months ago, what do we need an alternative financial system for? Now, today, it's a little clearer to understand why one might not be a bad idea and that's really helping a lot of the cryptos, I think, go from here. Jim, there's two reasons I like Jimmy's positions uh, very much. Number one is let's take the copper separate. Copper is a long-term winner. I, I almost don't care what anybody says, right? Just long-term, if we continue in the way we're going with carbon, electrification, all that other stuff, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, copper's a winner. 
Uh, the gold trade, we're about a percent and a quarter away from the all-time highs in the futures. Um, just being at that 20, what did we settle today? Somewhere around 2054. Yeah, so we're a percent and a quarter away. It's our third time up there. So those of us, those of you that are amateur technical analysts know that triple tops are generally continuation patterns, not reversal patterns after whatever fluctuations it has to go to. But outside of that, gold has done this without the Fed even cutting. Right. People think, this is my view of it, and, and jump at me if I'm wrong. People think gold is an inflation hedge, but it's really just another asset that rises during periods of asset inflation, right? It also rises when the Fed cuts rates and the dollar decreases in value. And so the three things that can happen, Fed cuts, Fed stays here, and the dollar stays weak because the ECB is continuing to hike, or we get a recession. Almost all three of those are good for gold. The worst one, inflation jumps back up and the Fed starts cutting or hiking again. That <laughs> pretty hard. And the last one, Bitcoin. Bitcoin has finally detached from the NASDAQ in terms of its correlation. So it's no longer this speculative, hey, NASDAQ is up, I'll throw a couple bucks in Bitcoin too. What Bitcoin people call the Bitcoin tourists are now out. Right. So, and lastly, the central bank digital currency makes people like Bitcoin, Ooh. right? Because so where do you fall on the uh, central bank digital currency? Because a lot of people say, well, that's the epitome of centralized just because it's digital, we don't want it. So let's move more into Bitcoin than this if we're going to be forced into something digital. So let me answer the question by jumping back to the gold thing and just making a quick comment. What we've done with gold for the last generation or longer is we financialized it, right? We've got futures, we've got options, we've got derivatives, we've got ETFs. Um, you know, I remember once I was at an investment conference and John Paulson was speaking, the, the, the big short guy that made a bazillion dollars. And his idea on gold was back, this was like 2010 or 11. And he was saying, I, I want to be long gold. Trade sort of kind of worked. It worked a little bit in 11. And I don't know when, when he got out of it. But he made an interesting comment. He said, you have to understand that you have to be long gold. And he said, that's like burying coins in your backyard or warehouse receipts in a foreign country. He said, if you think being long gold, and he was saying gold at the time, this was before cryptos, was the hedge against uncertainty. And he said, if you think that I'm going to buy GLD because everything's going to hit the fan, well, if it hits the fan, I'm going to tell you what your GLD is going to be worth, nothing. They're going to basically take it away from you. So that's why you've got to own gold in those formats. And he said, nobody does that. It's too hard. They buy GLD. And so the point is, we so financialize gold, it has become another fiat currency. So it is rallying for the same reason the dollar is going down. It is rallying for the same reason the euro is rallying. That is definitely at play with gold right now. So it is, I think, more at play than its original intent was. There's no real way to get your money out of the financial system, but gold is a way to sort of kind of do it in periods of uncertainty. That's now gone to the domain of crypto is where that's gone. But gold is now a fiat. And basically, the other fiats, the other currencies, the yen, the euro, <laughs> the pound, they're all rallying. And so is gold, because it's not what Peter Schiff tells me it is, you know, that it's supposed to be something different. It's, it's because we have financialized it so much that it's become a, uh, uh, another fiat. Well, we've kept you. We've kept you for an hour. Before I leave, I want to know what's your. It's not France. It's not the answer. What's your favorite Chicago restaurant? Oh God, my favorite Chicago restaurant. What is uh, Mia Francesca? Probably. Uh, Which one? On, the one on Clark Street. 
Yeah, the one on Clark Street, just north of Belmont. Yeah. I, I love that place. Bobby, what's your favorite Chicago restaurant? Uh, it's still Viaggio on Madison. They moved. They used to be right near the United Center, so it was just packed before Hawks games. Not as much for Bulls game, but Hawks games at any concert. You used to be able to park your car with the valet, walk to the United Center, and then walk back, and the valet would still be there waiting for you. Uh, but they oh, moved nice. further east, uh, only about three or four blocks of Viaggio. It's actually where I met my current wife, my last wife, hopefully. And... Um, <laughs> She, uh, she was a, a server there, and I, I stalked her for about 18 months before she said yes to go on a date with me. Still her can biggest. I, can, I, can, I give, can I give a shout-out to Gene and George Eddie's, too? Yeah. I, mean, oh, you, I love Gene and George Eddie's. You, you, know, that way, is, you, two, you two Dagos know that there's other non-Italian restaurants in Chicago, too. A refined cosmopolitan like myself has heard of these other restaurants, but Gene and George Eddie's is one of my favorites. Jim. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> All right, then how about Club Lucky? At least it doesn't have an aval in the end of its name. It's still Italian <laughs> you know? food. So yeah, I'll it's still Italian it. food, but it doesn't have a, 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 a in its name. <laughs> <laughs> but Gina Giorgetti's, the Muscles Marinara appetizer, I have dreams about that. It's so unbelievably good. But if yeah. you're if you're into mob movies, it is like walking into like the 1960s or 1970s. No the place is exactly it. the same. It hasn't changed in 50 years. I'll throw one I more thing in about Viaggio. The only thing you can't get down in, in the Florida area that I live, it's interesting because you can't go into an Italian restaurant in Florida and have everything be good. Certain places, well, there is one, but I'm not going to talk about it. But there's certain places you go for this and certain places you go for that. I can't find sausage and peppers and the Viaggio sausage and peppers. I, I would sometimes go in there and get two orders of that and leave. It's fantastic. Yeah. By I, the way, we'll just, shout out Gianni's by me in Palatine has a sausage and pepper dish to die for too. And that uh, place yeah, is good. good. I've been there. That yeah. place is very good. Right, right. Yeah. So you guys are you guys are make reminiscing about Chicago so much. You know, one of my when people ask me about what is the most what is the one of the most unique things that happens in Chicago that you don't see anywhere else, and that is in the winter when you dig out your car, you put your lawn furniture in that oh, spot. That is your spot. It. I own that spot. And Dibs, and, baby. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Last, one of the last yeah. negative things that happened to me in Chicago was I got into an argument with a twenty three year old neighbor who was from like Naperville, who moved my chairs and parked there. I mean, I like, oh, I like, no. I got a dozen <laughs> eggs and I went out there and it was 10 below. <laughs> my wife's like, get back in here, you nut. I'm like, well, I can't hit her. I gotta right, do right. something. I remember one time during a press conference after a big snowstorm, somebody asked uh, Mayor Daly, the uh, Richie, uh, Richard M. Daly, uh, like 15 years ago about that. And he goes, you know, people are putting their lawn furniture out there after they dig out the spots. That's city property. That's not legal to do that. And, and Daly's comment was, well, I'm not going to tell him not to do it. You could go tell him <laughs> not to do it. I don't want anything to do with this. I miss <laughs> that place. Yeah. Uh, all right. Thank you so much, Jim. Always Thank you. It's been a, again, it's I'll been tell you a fun. million times. Come out to Brands. We'll have a drink. It'll be fun. I will. Next time I get to Palatine, I will definitely. Cool. Cool. See you guys. Thank you. See Thank you. Guys. you.